Well, in our modern world, silence is hard to come by. I mean, when was the last time that you experienced silence, quietness, stillness? It's rare, right? It's rare because we live in a very loud world. Our eardrums are constantly filled with news and podcasts and music and conversation and social media and YouTube and even ambient sounds. Yes, even in the woods or on the water. And I'm sure that many of you in this room actually kind of like it that way. Because for many, silence, whether experienced intentionally or unintentionally, is deafening. In an ironic way, it can be the loudest thing that we've ever heard. But also, silence has a way of tilling up the soil of our thoughts. It stirs up things that we we may fear or desire to forget. Still, silence can make us feel alone, isolated, uneasy. Silence can be haunting. But what if we're talking about the most haunting silence one can ever experience? When God is silent. That is the most terrifying silence one can experience. And I, and I wonder, wonder this morning if God is silent in your life. I wonder if, if maybe you've experienced seasons of silence from God in your life. No matter our experience, the gospel according to John has some good news for us this morning. So with that, please open your Bible to the gospel according to John. This morning we're going to be continuing our series through this book. If you do not have a Bible, you can find one in a pew near you. You can find John on page 886. 886. If you do not own a Bible, uh, we would love to get one to you, to give one to you. So come uh, find myself or, or one of the volunteers here, and we will make sure that we get uh, a Bible into your hand today. But if you are also, if you're a member here at HFBC, or if you've been a regular attender for a long time or a short time, uh, let me encourage you to bring your physical Bible to church. Because you'll be helped to keep your Bible open to this passage this morning. We're going to be diving in to John 1, verses 19 through 34. John 1, 19 through 34. Please follow along as I read. In 
And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is God's Word to and for the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray once again for the Lord to bless the hearing and applying of His Word this morning. Father, we do thank You for Your Word that is good and profitable. And Spirit, we ask now that You would come and turn the lights on in our dim hearts and minds so that we may behold the glory of Jesus this morning. I pray that You would speak from heaven to us, Lord, from your word, and that you would guide and help me, your feeble servant, this morning. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray together. Amen. Amen. Well, last week, we looked at the prologue of John's gospel. We looked at the first 18 verses, and in those first 18 verses, we discovered the truth that Jesus is God and that He is good, and that He is great above all. That's what we learned in the first 18 verses, and that that truth is the foundation of the book of John. Every event, every conversation, everything documented in this book is going to come back to those first 18 verses. And as we established last week, and we'll continue to establish throughout the series, this book was written so that we might behold Jesus. So that we might hear Him, know Him, 
see his greatness and his glory more and more deeply and clearly. And so that we might come to a fuller and deeper and broader faith in him. And to this end of beholding Jesus in verses 19 through 34, the verses that we just read together, we see this truth. That Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who rescues us from our sin. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who rescues us from our sin. If you don't write down anything else today, that's what you should write down. That's the main point of this text. And in this passage, we read of a messenger in verses 19 through 28 that proclaims this message in verses 29 to 34 to a world that needs to hear it. So that's our main point and our outline this morning. With that, point one, the messenger. Look with me once again at verses 19 through 28. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him then, why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Well, our passage begins there in verse 19 with this. This is the testimony of John. Let's stop there. This is not John, the author of the book. This is speaking of a man called John the Baptist. And if John the Baptist had a Facebook or a LinkedIn profile, it would say something like this in the About Me. Hi, I'm John, and I'm a Baptist. Wink. (laughs) You probably don't know much about me, but I live in the wilderness. I wear leather and camel hair clothes. I enjoy fine delicacy, bugs, and honey. I'm a messenger from God. You know, like the messengers of old in the Old Testament. And I have a message for you. Don't wait. Turn from your sin. Turn from the world. And turn toward Jesus. My cousin, repent of your sin and do this today. And then get baptized over there in the river. If you want to know more, you can come out and find me in the boonies. I want to talk to you more about the one that you're longing for. If we took a summary of the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we would discover this, at least some of these things about John the Baptist. And you can imagine that a man like this, that looks like this, with a message like this, 
would cause quite a cultural and religious stir, right? And a stir he did. And so we read in verse 19 that the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem, Jerusalem being the religious hub and where temple life existed, out into the wild to check them out. Now catch this, the, the word, those words, the Jews, occurs over 70 times in this gospel account. It is often used as shorthand for the religious leaders of that day. The grassroots opposing party to Jesus. And these folks caught wind of John the Baptist and they sensed a disturbance in the status quo of their religion. And so they sent a search party from Jerusalem. Now what's fascinating about this is a, is a contrast that we see in this section. One, one commentator points this out, and, and we should note this as well, that John the Baptist, according to chapter 1, verse 6, was sent from God. But this search party of priests and Levites were sent from man. More specifically, from the Pharisees, as noted there in verse 24. And when they find John the Baptist, when the search party comes and finds him, what do they do? They interrogate him, like uh, they begin to ask him questions, like on Matlock or uh, like a Law and Order episode. In verses 19 to 22, they ask five questions. Who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? What do you call yourself? See, God's people were waiting. They were waiting for Christ, the Messiah. This is why the religious leaders sent the search party out to meet John the Baptist in the first place. They wanted to know who he was. And if he was claiming to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Rescuer. So they ask him, are you the Christ? And John confesses. And then he confesses. Notice that. I am not. And they say, okay, well then, are you Elijah? Now, why would they ask this? God's people were also waiting for God's word to be fulfilled. The word spoken to and through the prophet Malachi in Malachi chapters 3 and 4. They were waiting. They were anticipating a literal Elijah to come. Now, just a note on this. What the religious leaders did not see clearly was that the messenger, John the Baptist, was fulfilling in many parts, in many ways, was fulfilling Malachi's prophecy, just in a little bit of a different way than they expected. And Jesus makes this point in Matthew 11. And so the search team asks, again, are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. So they press on. They say, okay, well, then are you the prophet? The promised one of Deuteronomy 18, the new prophet, the one that's kind of like Moses. Are you that guy? John says, clearly, I am not. So exasperated, they ask, then what do you call yourself? Come on now. If you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah nor the prophet, then tell us. See, again, God's people have been waiting for the Christ. And catch this, God's people had endured 400 years of silence between Malachi and John the Baptist. Between them, there was not one word from God. And that silence was 
deafening. It was haunting. And so here John the Baptist speaks on behalf of God to the people of God. He quotes from Isaiah. He says in verse 23, finally, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. We must see what's happening here. This is amazing. Are you with me? Okay. John is quoting Isaiah chapter 40 and applying it to his ministry. So when Isaiah chapter 40 was written, God's people were heading into a long physical and spiritual exile. A long season of silence and separation from God in Babylonian captivity. And similarly, God's people had been in a long season of silence and separation from God between Malachi and John the Baptist. And then Jesus. And so connecting all of this, we see in these verses that John was sent by God as the one who would prepare the way for the Christ to finally come. The Christ who would ultimately bring his people out of spiritual exile and back to God forevermore. John's audience who knew their scriptures would have known this. They would have seen and heard this fulfillment in what he was saying and what he was doing in the wilderness. Well, also we see in these verses that John knew his role. He knew his place in God's story. He was merely, did you catch that? A voice. Preparing the way for the Lord. Preparing the way for the word of life. Christ himself. God could have used a different voice but he chose to work in and through John. And that's humbling. That's humbling. One pastor summarizes John's ministry in one phrase. Not me, but him. That is faithful humility. And it should be humbling to us. Similar to John, every Christian in this room is a mere voice. God doesn't need us. And yet, by grace, He chooses to use us. He uses crooked sticks to make straight lines. Imperfect people for His perfect purposes. He uses the weak to uphold His strength. We see in these verses, that John's ministry was a ministry of making a way. A humble making of a way. It was a ministry of preparation. And in that preparation, he called Jews and Gentiles, as we read here, to repent and to be baptized with water. And this was questionable to the religious leaders of the day. Uh, heretic alarms were going off in their, in their minds. For the religious leaders, this was apostasy. That he would be baptizing even those who were already Gods? How does that work? What's going on here? And this is why the search party asks him in verse 25, if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, if yours is the ministry of preparation, then why are you baptizing? And John the Baptist responds in verses 27 to 28, Oh, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Did you notice, brothers and sisters, apparently Jesus is walking among them. And John is is pointing out that he is below him. He is below Jesus. Even lower than a slave. 
This is what's meant by he wouldn't even untie or tie Jesus' sandal. Again, John knew his role, his place. He didn't forget that he was simply a voice. And let's take some more, some more notes here from John. Notice that John didn't say in any of these things. He didn't say, yeah, I'm not, I'm not this, but you should check out what I've done. Oh, how, how many followers I have. Look, look how many members I have of different ages and stages. Look how many baptisms I've done. He doesn't say any of that because for John, and I would add for faithful and humble churches, we recognize that none of those things define success. None of them. Brothers and sisters, faithfulness to Jesus and His Word equals success. And so humble Christians say, as John will say later, we must decrease, He must increase. It's not about me and my message. It's about Jesus and His message. This is what faithful and humble Christians sound like. This is what faithful and humble leaders sound like. This is what faithful and humble churches sound like. John's faithful ministry was centered on proclaiming not his own word and work, but the word and work of Jesus in the gospel, and nothing else. And his wilderness ministry that wasn't even in Jerusalem, it was on the outskirts, it was nowhere near the city center, it was attracting Jews and Gentiles from all around. The, the ministry was flourishing. And it wasn't because of personality. It wasn't because of gimmicks. It wasn't because of attractions. It wasn't because of programs. It wasn't because of an event or events. No, it was because he was faithfully proclaiming the word and work of Jesus. And so let's learn from John here as a church. May we not be a numbers-driven church or a metrics-driven church or a stats-driven church or our work-driven church, but may we be a church that's focused on declaring Jesus and His Word and work. May we not think of the, of the church like a business or a startup or a corporation run by a CEO with a board, or a social club, because the church is none of those things. The church is the body of Christ, and Jesus is the head. And the body is made up of gospel people saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, and are committed to Jesus and committed to one another because of Jesus. And here's the deal. Jesus is going to build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, as Jesus says in Matthew 16. And he's going to do that in spite of us. Though he may use us. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And so may we be, here at HFBC, a faithful, word-centered, Jesus-driven, gospel-proclaiming local church. Let's have our priorities straight. 
May we be a church that is committed to God's word, committed to the gospel, committed to God's people here at HFBC, and committed to care and cohesion for our good and for God's glory. May HFBC be a church that is faithful to proclaim the word and work of Jesus in the gospel. May the gospel be our ultimate message, the same message that John the Baptist had so long ago. That old message that doesn't get old. It's timeless. And it's the message that he goes on and proclaims in these following verses. And that brings us to point two, the message. Let's look at the message there in verses 29 through 34. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Have you ever heard the expression, don't miss the forest for the trees? Well, everything in verses 19 to 28 has been building to this point, this central message from this messenger. And we've got to catch this. We can't miss, we should not miss the forest for the trees here in this passage because this right here is the pinnacle of John's ministry. Right here. We find in verse 29 that it is the next day and that there are people gathered around John the Baptist once again, and Jesus shows up once again. Can you imagine, just for a minute, can you imagine this wilderness scene? This has got to be wild. And John declares the message. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is John's glorious message. And where is John getting this? How would his hearers have understood this? What would the early readers of this gospel, the gospel of John, what would they make of this? And how should we understand this message today? I'm so glad you asked. Here once again, John is pulling from the whole scope of the Old Testament and then from his own family experience, his own family life. See, John the Baptist's dad was a Levite priest. John was himself as well. And he grew up in the temple. And at the heart of temple life, with God in the Old Testament, and specifically in temple worship, was a sacrificial lamb. And so, what is John doing here? Well, just as he took us back to the Old Testament in the prologue, here, once again, he is taking us back into the Old Testament. And what would have surfaced in the minds of John's hearers, and what should be surfacing in our minds now, is the sacrificial system 
and the sacrificial lambs of the Old Testament when we hear this declaration, when we hear this message. We should be taken back to the sacrificial lamb provided by God for Abraham right as he was about to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 22. The sacrificial lambs offered in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. The sacrificial lamb mentioned in Isaiah chapter 53 that would be killed for the sins of God's people. And most specifically, John is taking us back to the Passover lamb of Exodus 12. In that chapter, we read of the exodus of God's people from under Egyptian rule and slavery. We, we read there of God's judgment on sin and injustice passing through the land of Egypt. Do you know that story? You familiar with that story? We can read of all of this in Exodus, and particularly Exodus chapter 12, where we see all of the firstborn in the land of both household and livestock killed and the false gods of Egypt destroyed. And in the midst of all of that, God speaks covenant words of hope and of life. In the midst of all of that darkness, he commands his people to sacrifice what? A lamb. And to take some of the blood of the lamb and to put it on the doorposts of their homes. So that when God's judgment rolls through the land, that those with the blood on the doorposts would be passed over. And the life of their firstborn spared. See, in Exodus 12, the Passover lamb bore the judgment of God's wrath against sin and died in the place of those in the home. Do you see that? And we cannot miss this. Are, are you with me? Still with me? Okay. What John wants us to see and hear in this declaration, this message of verse 29, is that all of the Old Testament sacrifices, and most specifically, the sacrificial lamb of Exodus 12, all pointed forward and climaxed in the gospel of Jesus. Because Jesus is the definitive sacrificial lamb who once and for all rescues us from our sin. See, in this message, John wants us to look back to the Exodus and then forward to the gospel work of Jesus on the cross. For on the cross, Christ died as the sinless sacrificial lamb. He died as a sinless substitute in our place. On the cross, Jesus took the judgment that we deserved, that you and I deserved. He took, as we sang earlier in that song, in Christ alone. He satisfied God's wrath and took our sin upon himself. All of the sin and death and darkness that came as a result of our rebellion in Genesis chapter 3. And on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Once and for all, there is no sacrifice needed any longer. There will never be a sacrifice needed ever again. The work is done. And Jesus assured us of this by rising from the grave three days later after being crucified in victory over sin and death for all who believe in him for salvation. And we look forward to his return where he will fully consummate that victory once and for all. 
brother, sister, the cross work and death of Jesus is what is called the substitutionary atonement. Let's make no mistake. The substitutionary atonement is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel. Because if Jesus did not die as the sinless substitute sacrificial lamb in our place, then we could not be forgiven nor rescued of our sin. That sin that separates us from God. If we lose the substitutionary atonement, we will lose the gospel. Apart from the blood of the Lamb, apart from Him, there could be no salvation. Because we're not saved because we're a good person. We're not saved because of our good works. We're not saved because we grew up in a Christian family or have been part of one, two, three generations of said church. Wherever that may be. We're not saved because we've made a profession and then abandoned that profession. Christ's work on the cross alone saves. His work alone assures us of eternal life with Him forevermore. And in light of that work, in order to be saved, all we must do is repent of our sin. All of those ways that we were walking in darkness and word, thought, and action and missing the mark of holiness and believe in Jesus alone for salvation. And when we repent, oh, when we repent and believe in Jesus, then like that, His holiness is exchanged for our unholiness. His purity is exchanged for our impurity. And when we repent and believe in the Gospel, then catch this. The Spirit applies the blood of the Lamb to the doorposts of our hearts. And that means that when we stand before God on the last day, the judgment that was due us will have already fallen on the Lamb who was slain. Praise God. If you are here today and you do not know Jesus, if you don't know this gospel work, if you have questions, I'm going to be standing in the back after the service. I'd love to speak with you. Or you can maybe even find someone after the service who's in the pew near you and, and smiling while I was sharing that work of Jesus. They would love to talk with you. We would love to talk with you more about this finished work of Jesus and how it could transform your life too. Christian, brother, sister, isn't that gospel work amazing? It's the good news that we should never get over. But it can be so easy to lose sight of it, right? It can be so easy. And and so, do you live with guilt because of sins that you've committed or maybe sins committed against you? Do you live with shame because of unconfessed or unresolved or unreconciled issues in your life? Oh, if you are a Christian, then that means that there is, therefore, now, no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus because of His blood shed for you. It's His blood that covers you. 
So there is no guilt in life. No shame in life. Because his blood speaks a better word over you. And through him and because of his sacrificial work, you and I, we can live in light of that work. We can keep repenting and keep believing and looking to him. We can pursue reconciliation where appropriate. We can continue to pursue forgiveness where it hasn't been. We can pursue mercy and peace where there was once no mercy and no peace, both inside the church and outside the church. And here's the beautiful thing. You aren't alone in this. The Lord has given you a room full of of other people to walk with you. So I would encourage you to get together this week. I know we have busy schedules. Get together this week with someone in the church. Reread this passage. Apply it. And talk through how you can both come to a deeper understanding of that gospel and then walk in that gospel. You could do something like a method, like look up, look in, look out. Look at it again and say, what does this text tell tell me about Jesus? What does this text tell me about myself? How does this text call me to live a transformed life and love my neighbor? Do this for your good, for the good of the church, for the glory of God. If you don't have time this week, do it next week or the following or the following. Well, John the Baptist continues in the following verses. He points to Jesus and not himself. He assures the crowds that it is Jesus who ranks above him. He even says in verses 31 through 33 that he did not know him, meaning that John the Baptist likely hadn't met Jesus until his baptism. And this is where John goes next, to when he baptized Jesus. You can read of that baptism in those first three gospel accounts in Matthew 3, Mark 1, or Luke 3. And John, here recounting Jesus' baptism and Jesus' glory being revealed, states in verse 32 that at the baptism he saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remain on him. Here John is quoting Isaiah once again. Isaiah 11, verse 2. That verse that pointed toward Jesus, the one whom the Spirit of the Lord would rest. See, throughout the Old Testament, the Spirit would come down and then he would kind of depart from people. We see this like in the life of King Saul and even King David. But John is making it abundantly clear here that the Spirit has come down upon the Son of God, the one whom God is well pleased with. Upon Him, upon Jesus, the favor and the blessing and the Spirit rests permanently. And because He has fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies and promises of Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 40 through 42 and Ezekiel 36, for instance. Because those have been fulfilled, they can now be applied through him to the church, to us today. And he alone is the one who can baptize with the Holy Spirit. These verses are a declaration of who Jesus is as the Spirit baptizer and what he's done for his people once and for all. And if you've ever thought, what's going on with this spirit baptism language? What what does this even mean? You're in good company. 
a lot of ink has been spilt on this. But in the context of John, there is clarity. See, John the Baptist baptized with water. And we know from the whole testimony of Scripture that water baptism doesn't save you. You know that, right? Water baptism does not save you. Yes, water baptism is important. It is a step of obedience. Baptism is a way that uh, is the way the Christian goes public in the context of a local church. But in contrast to this water baptism is the baptism of the Spirit, which can only come from Jesus, only. And that baptism from the Spirit saves. And we see a picture of this, this Spirit baptism in Acts chapter 2. We don't have time to live in that text, though I wish we could spend more time there today. Um, But Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. There we see the Holy Spirit fall upon the apostles and the Word of God is proclaimed and thousands of souls believe. They repent and they believe and they are baptized with water. We see in Acts chapter 2 that it's God's Word and Holy Spirit that come together in the salvation of souls. Those, those two, God's Word and Spirit, are never separated. They always work together. And so to be clear, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is regeneration. A work that is fully of God. We're going to see an example of this in John chapter 3. And this is fully the work of Jesus. And catch this, all who are in Christ and have Christ living in them have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, then you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit already. You don't get baptized with the Holy Spirit over and over and over again. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is is not a feeling. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is not an expression. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is, is being given New life through Christ. That's what being baptized with the Holy Spirit is. And so, a Spirit-filled church is a Christ-filled church, a Gospel-filled church, and a Word-filled church. A Spirit-filled church made up of those who have been baptized with the Spirit, who are though imperfect, who are though imperfect, pursuing Christ and the truth of his word is a church that is spiritually alive and maturing. And if Christ is in our midst and his spirit is at work in us, then this means that we can open God's word day after day, week after week, personally and collectively, and we can ask the spirit to show us Jesus to reform and conform us into his image further, to renew our minds and revive our hearts and to cause us to walk in step with him together and to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit together, which are what? Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Oh, a spirit-filled church bears those fruits and is Christ-filled and word-filled. Well, we should close. At the beginning of our time together, we, we thought briefly about silence. We thought about it generally. But we also thought about it 
spiritually. And I, and I asked, what if we're talking about the most terrifying silence that one can experience, which is the silence from God? And in response to this, here is the good news of the Gospel of John. Here is the good news of this passage this morning. It's this. God has spoken. He has revealed Himself. He has given Himself through His Word and through His Spirit. And ultimately through Jesus, who is the Word, who is the Lamb, who is God with us. God will not, He has not left us in silence. He hasn't. God has given us His Son. He has spoken to us loudly. He has spoken to us clearly. He has spoken to us ultimately in the Lamb who was slain for sinners. So, are you listening to His voice today? Let's pray. Lord, we praise You for You and Your Word. And we thank You for the Gospel of Your Son. And we pray that Your Word and Gospel would be at work in our, in our midst. In the midst of this congregation. We ask that we would be a people marked by Your Spirit, Your Word, and Your Gospel. And Lord, we, we look forward to the day when we are together with the saints who have gone before us and standing before You, Jesus, and seeing You as You are and declaring the words of Revelation chapter 5, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Until that day, we ask, Spirit, that You would bless us and keep us and conform us into the image of Jesus. It's in His name and for His sake that we pray. Amen.